Welcome to yet another episode of Shortcast Over Coffee. My guest today is Dr. Aruna Ramakrishnan. Aruna earned her PhD from the University of Minnesota and has an undergraduate degree in chemical engineering from IIT Bombay. She is the co-founder and CTO of the Boston-based startup Copernic Catalyst. Copernic Catalyst designs novel chemical catalysts to reduce the energy use and carbon footprint of bulk chemical reactions. This will be a two-part episode. Part one of this episode will unpack Aruna's journey from IIT Bombay to ExxonMobil. Part two of this episode will cover her journey from big oil to a climate tech entrepreneur. I had a lovely time talking to Aruna and hope you guys enjoyed too. Let's get on with the episode. Hi Aruna, welcome to the podcast. Hi Bala, nice to talk to you. Yeah, so I see that you did chemical engineering at IIT Bombay and a master's and PhD in chemical engineering from University of Minnesota. Uh, tell me more about your background. What was your research on? Well, um, I got into engineering kind of, um, I think really it was a fluke that I got into engineering. I I was good academically and um, it was just, you know, engineering. I, I heard some people say that, uh, you know, girls shouldn't do engineering. And then I thought I should prove them wrong, I think. And then I gave the entrance test for IIT and got in. Um, and then from then on, I, uh, I enjoyed chemical engineering. It, it was, um, it was a field that allowed me to bring together, um, uh, different kinds of disciplines. So if, if you, if you were interested in biology, you could still do some biotech kind of stuff with the chemi background. Um, if you're interested in more of, you know, computation, you could do that as well. So it was a nice mis you know, it was a nice gray area kind of where, um, I could defer what I really wanted to do by doing chemical engineering. And, and that led me to research because research, again, takes you um, to a place where you can answer all kinds of questions, um, satisfy your curiosity. I wasn't sure that I wanted to take up a job yet after I graduated. And so that kind of defaulted me towards research. Um, and then um, during my research, again, I I think the story of my life is really um I've always tried to explore what I really like to do and um, try to understand myself and what is a good fit for me. Um, and so my research was also kind of about that. So my master's and PhD, I focused on two different areas. I started out by doing purely experimental work. Um, so, um, you know, we were uh, uh, basically trying to figure out what kinds of materials would make good membranes, catalysts, things like that. Um, and this was all towards um, industrial applications, right? So um, if I take a step back, I can explain what chemical engineering is. It is, um, a lot of people think it's chemistry, but it's actually not. Um, there's a lot of mechanical engineering and, um, I, you know, just very uh, fundamental math that goes into chemical engineering. Um, it's, it's something that allows you to do things at large scales. That's what chemical engineering is, right? Chemistry, you do things in the lab, you do things in test tubes, you discover. It's very fundamental, very uh, science-driven. And chemical engineering kind of takes the chemistry and makes it work at very large scales. And so when you, when we, um, for example, making polymers or, uh, you know, oil and gas is an example of uh, something that's been around for a really long time uh, as a way of providing energy to the world. All of these are really large-scale problems. Um, and so you really need the tools of engineering to make science work. 
And so chemical engineering allows you to do this, right? And in my research, I was looking at different ways to um, do things on at large scales better. Um, and then there's, there's different, um, they're called, you know, unit operations like separations or the, in a reaction, you bring molecules together. In separations, you separate out molecules. And different permutations and combinations of these kinds of processes allow you to um, allow you to make what the world needs. And so in the research that I was doing, I was looking at each of these little steps and trying to make each step better uh, by using novel materials. That, that's what I did in my master's. And then in my PhD, um, I kind of uh, realized, so again, I had a realization about myself that um, a lot of the experimental, the experimental work that um, uh, at least that, that I was doing at the time, it was purely experimental. So it was not guided by any sort of systematic thought or systematic. It was more intuition guided, I guess, learning from past experiments, but it was not, um, you know, based on like a mathematical model or something that was very fundamental. Um, and I realized that was something I was interested in. And so I started exploring that area. And, to, and for my PhD, I ended up doing computational fluid dynamics. Um, and I actually was doing something very esoteric. It was called electrohydrodynamics, uh, looking at how electric fields can drive liquids. Um, but again, it had an industrial application. And um, University of Minnesota uh, has uh, a lot of ties with the industry. And so this, my, in my PhD, I had ties with the coating and printing industry. They were interested in this kind of technology. Um, but yeah, so it, it was all, you know, in solving interesting problems throughout my grad school, but with an eye on always having an application at the end of it. Um, so it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't just so, just doing science for the sake of science. Yeah, you were you were saying how uh, chemical engineering is different from chemistry, right? I think I think it's in in general like hardcore science versus applied science um, is a little different. Like how you have these you know, PhDs in mathematics who solve really fundamental math problems versus versus mm -hmm. applied mathematicians who find an application to that uh, to that invention or or discovery in this case rather. Um, so so we are talking about early two thousands or or you know probably mid two thousands when you were in in doing your bachelor's right. Uh, what was the scene in chemical engineering like back in those days and? You know what did majority of uh, actually let's go back let's go let's take a step back what was the class size like what was the ratio like um, sure. male to female and what did people do after graduation uh, did everyone go to research or industry yeah good good questions uh, so obviously at the time IITs um, I think our our batch the entire engineering batch was about five hundred to six hundred uh, kids and we were. Um, in chemical engineering, we probably had about 80 or 90 in our class. Um, the gender ratio was always bad. <laughs> so when I joined uh, in my uh, in the hostel, I remember Hostel 10, we had about 36 girls um, out of the 500, you know, 500 to 600 uh, total. Uh, but my chemical engineering class actually had a little more girls. We had about 10 or 11 girls out of 90. Um, so it was not, it, it was bad, but it was not uh, like I was the only girl. Um, but uh, I don't know, but somehow I just got numbed to, uh, I guess, noticing gender related things because I had just been around, um, you know, in, in an environment where I always was used to there being a, 
low female to male ratio uh so it, it wasn't it, it wasn't anything that got in the way really it was quite fine and actually when um i met my future husband in my class and and we got married many years later but uh, so that that was another perk of going to iit yeah i mean it gets reminded me of one of uh, rahul subramanian's joke here's your degree here's your wife or spouse <laughs> or whatever um uh but yeah i mean going back to what what people did after graduation uh, what was the what was the usual choice so a lot of people in the iits i think even today unfortunately um they join under pressure that you know somebody is putting pressure on them that they have to do engineering they have to do iit once you go to iit your life is set that kind of mindset is very much there it was there then i think it is uh, some some people have grown out of that mindset today i think it's but i i think there's still a lot of pressure that uh, that kids face when they choose engineering so i guess half the class wasn't really interested in engineering to begin with and then um and then people decide their discipline when they join iit based on their all india rank and so most of the chemical engineers in class were there because their rank put them in that uh, discipline and again that compounds the problem right so you have a lot of people that are not really maybe as interested in the core um subject or they're not there because they because of that interest at least they're there mostly because of the brand and because they want to leverage it to do something else maybe do an mba or you know go do something else in the future um so i'd say that about um you know more than half the class did went into you know became analysts or uh, they did things that were completely unrelated to chemical engineering but used their analytical skills um i'd say maybe another 20 to 30% of the class went into core chemical engineering jobs and maybe about 10 15% went into research so that was the that was a split back then and i think um, from what i'm hearing now it it's even worse today uh, with even fewer people going into core jobs and um, but i hear there's a lot of interest in going into startups or uh, you know that 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 ecosystem has changed a lot since i graduated i graduated in 2008 and so um you know i think people are being more bold now after their undergrad and i see a lot more young youngsters wanting to explore the startup space yeah i think i think the startup space in india has gone uh, has gone bonkers to be honest i mean mm-hmm. um I, i think from what i remember uh, from from when i did undergrad uh, i think slumberjay or maybe reliance uh, you know those companies used to recruit chemical engineers on on a, on a large scale and uh, like you said you know most people would would go on to do their mba but i think the critical thing is that you know uh, while you are uh, at iit uh, you know doing your four years of engineering uh, you sort of develop a lot more skills right i mean you develop uh, management skills you you develop communication um, and and through the fests and and what not so college you know teaches maybe a lot more things that that eventually end up uh, helping you um uh, chemical engineering also involves a lot of math so maybe that also came in handy for for a lot of people uh, in in future uh but uh, coming back to uh, coming back to life after iit did you mm-hmm. always wanted to do a, a masters or was that was that your uh, goal let's say at third year of iit or or did it come uh, sometime yeah. later so i i've always been the kind of person who has interest in too many different kinds of things and sometimes find it finds it difficult to make a decision uh, because i don't want to let anything go 
but uh, I think that kind of led me towards research because um, I, I always had a natural curiosity of trying to in trying to understand uh, to a greater depth how things work and um, I felt like my bachelor's had just given me a taste and I really wanted to explore and um, I think on the philosophical side explore you know find out more about how the world works explore some deeper truths about how the world works um, and um, and on a more personal side I also wanted to explore the world you know get out of India look at you know how the world works and um, get get a first-hand feel of uh, staying with you know in different cultures and um, America at the time I think even now for a lot of people it, it is a place uh, which brings together a diverse mix of people from all over the world and so for all of these reasons um, I decided to go to grad school and um, and I chose the University of Minnesota because it, it has a really good chemical engineering department um, it's a big department with a lot of uh, flexibility and options and um, and again just from the point of view of wanting enough choice and uh, wanting to be able to explore uh, that that was a good fit yeah you you touched on cfd i think uh, computational fluid dynamics is also quite reputed in university of minnesota because they have like a dam or something by by next to the university or yeah 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 they do what, what what's that about can can you tell me yeah they have um it, it's basically a facility that um, allows them to do different experiments uh, um i think on turbulence and things like that in fluid fluid dynamics and different departments are involved in that i think it's more the mechanical department mechanical engineering department yeah i think aerospace um, too yeah and and maybe aerospace I, I don't recall exactly but i know what you're talking about and uh, the research that i did was more microfluidics so fluid flow on very small scales um and it was more laminar flow and um not not really the large scale mixing and turbulent flows um like i said it had application towards coating and printing processes which sounds it sounds the first time i heard about it i thought oh that sounds kind of boring like coating and printing <laughs> but then the more i read about it and i looked into it it's it's super important how surfaces are at micro scales because that influences their macro scale properties their the properties that we observe and so that got me more and more interested in materials and how they work materials engineering um and so any kind of um, you know nanoscale flow uh, for example I said coating, but also in printing, um, there's, uh, there's there is actually a boom in um, high throughput printing for the sake of printed electronics or you know printing on flexible surfaces and that kind of. At the time, it was a new thing. It was not really. Um, I think since then, uh, printing RFIDs and things like that has become pretty commonplace. But at the time, uh, it was very important to get um, a printing very accurate because if you if you print with defects it's okay for like a newspaper or something like that but it's it's not okay if you want to print a circuit right so improving printing accuracy also requires a lot of um, materials engineering um, for for the actual ink that you print the way that you print it um, so there's there's materials angle and there's a process angle both to it so I worked on both the material as well as the process in my grad school yeah interesting you touch on so many different aspects while sticking to chemical engineering right i, I feel like um you, you know while while you were doing your masters and phd you you really did explore quite a few different fields um now now thinking about uh work after phd right what do you want to do after phd you know you could go 
either the industry route or or the postdoc route uh, having had so many things in your plate were you at any point sort of disoriented as to what i what do i really want to do or or were you really clear about uh, what you wanted to no, do no no i was never clear i was the most unclear person you could find probably in my department uh, but um i think uh, having all of these different experiences gave me a, an interesting tool set and it made me a um because my masters and my phd were so different it made me a, a a unique person in the in the from the sense that usually people do one thing and then they specialize super specialize and when, whenever you look at academics that's that's how it usually goes um but having kind of a mishmash of different skills um i think it gave me um it was a strength and i didn't really I didn't necessarily recognize it at the time. I felt like, you know, you know, I'm I, I sometimes I would feel maybe I'm behind my peers or um you know, I'm, I why don't I have have such a clear sense of uh, where I want to go or what I want to do. Um but I just, you know, I just trust, trusted my own instincts and um what I was looking for was um definitely not to be too academic. I wanted to be applied and see my work kind of come to fruition. um so i think uh, you know that postdoc path postdoc professor path was uh, i think i shut it off in my third year at ph uh, third or fourth year in grad school i said what what was the reason behind it um well i think academics is um, is a good field for the right kind of person um so a couple of reasons right i observed different um, uh, different people in my peer group go down this path and one thing is a lot of their time was spent in just grant writing and trying to get money to be able to do the work that they wanted um the secondly there's the pressure of uh, tenure of course that you have to have a certain number of publications um or a certain quality of publications so all of which is good i think for the university but it also puts a lot of pressure and um and reduces your flexibility in what you can do so i think i really wanted to stay as flexible as i could um and um and and stay as applied as i could so these were the two reasons that yeah interesting revelation like um you know i have noticed uh, people people go down the the academic path and and some of them share the 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 route to professorship and it is so difficult um mm-hmm. you know like you have to write so many documents get so many referrals and and you know if you want to move to industry you just create a resume and and upload it on workday or whatever the platform yeah, you know, is you know i think both both paths have their own challenges um i think it's up to you to decide which set of challenges is more suited to you right so, so for some people um you know i i know people that just don't dislike the idea of going into the corporate world completely and they want to stay academic because they feel that's you know it's a more you know it's more pure and it's more you know they can at least within their own world they can do what they want um um so and i'm not saying that one is more or less challenging than the other but i think in when you're thinking of your own career you really have to look inward and see what you're suited for and um not fool yourself you know you have to understand your weaknesses and understand your strengths um and i quickly realized that i you know my strengths don't play to the academic um the academic route Yeah yeah I think no, no what I was referring to was was just that route to professorship like the application process was just the tenureship yeah um uh, yeah tenureship and also uh, yeah. the kind of documents that you have to submit or or maybe that's just how it works you know maybe um uh, they do require that level of detailing to actually vet out uh, the, the bad candidates or you know make sure that someone is really really interested because 
you know, in a lot of ways, universities um, do invest a lot of money uh, and lot of, give a lot of money to, to set up a lab and all of that. So maybe that's, that's why uh, it is what it is. Yeah, yeah. And I think it also depends on the department. Um, it's It can also be super competitive if you're looking to get into, you know, one of the top 20 or 30 universities. It's, it's very competitive. Um, so I know, like, really good peers of mine who had to interview in more than 10 places uh, before they found something. And it took them a few years to find uh, an assistant professor position. So it was, it's, it's a tough road. You really have to be motivated uh, to choose that path. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so you completely shut off the academic route and then you moved to industry. Um, you have worked in a few companies and have like close to 15 patents from, from what I, what I understand. Uh, tell me about, tell me about your work experience. We'll, we'll get to the startup part later. Sure, sure. Um, actually, I should say one thing. I, when I was in grad school, I did want to test the waters a little bit. I did an industrial internship while I was a PhD student. And, um, and at the time that was actually in my department, it was a very unconventional thing. People did not go off, uh, take a break from the PhD to do an internship. Um, and I did it twice. So, um, and I, I was fortunate to be blessed with a really good advisor who understood that it was something I needed. Um, and, and interestingly, after that, the, the next few batches after me started, people started doing more and more industrial internships. So it, I, I kind of like that I started a trend. Um, but through the internship, I learned that a sweet spot for me was actually um, early stage development. So bringing my research skills into an industrial setting and doing some of this uh, technology development uh, between, you know, a, a very, uh, it's not at the full scale, but it's not also not at just the very early discovery stage. So kind of in the middle where you're scaling up a novel idea from um, like a test tube level to all the way to deployment. I found that that was, um, uh, it's an underappreciated idea, an uh, underappreciated space because, uh, a lot of ideas fail in this space. It's almost like uh, like a valley of death. Um, you know, scientists are very, there's, there's, there's thousands of ideas that scientists are very excited about. There's papers in um, nature and science and all kinds of magazines that look very good when you read them. But if you look at it through an engineering lens, you can quickly uh, tell which ideas have the potential to be scaled up and which ideas don't. And I feel that that kind of, um, um, an input at an early stage of research can really help to bring the right ideas up quickly so that you're not stuck churning your wheels on ideas that may not have a future. And, and that early stage um, application kind of a lens, looking at looking at things through a scale-up lens and an applied lens that um, that can benefit early stage researchers as well. So that, that's what I discovered when I did my internships. And I realized that, that that's the kind of space where I wanted to be, at least initially, out of my PhD. And so after my PhD, I joined a company called Praxair, which no longer exists. Uh, it was actually taken over by Linde, uh, which is a, a large gas company. You might have heard of it. Um, but um, in that company, I was doing this kind of early stage development work. So not really full-blown engineering, but lots of engineering with uh, some science in it, kind of a mix of both. Um, and there I was working on uh, things like making hydrogen and I was learning about how things are done at large scales. I was involved in, um, in, in an actual greenfield 
which means actually putting together steel on the ground and um, putting together a plant on the ground. Now, this was not something I'd done before because as a chemical engineer, I was just a paper engineer. I don't, you know, I just had my, I just solved equations and done things on paper at IIT. And then I did research after that. So this was my first real experience with um, um, executing and solving real world problems. And so that was super useful. I, I did that a couple of years and then I, I stayed in the same field, um, but I moved companies. I went from Praxair to ExxonMobil. And ExxonMobil, as people know, is this, uh, you know, big oil, right? Big, large-scale um, oil and gas, um, like basically providing energy, different forms of energy and different forms of chemicals. That's what um, they love to be called now, energy company. Yes, <laughs> yes. Everyone's rebranded as energy now, right? Nobody likes to say oil. It's become a dirty word. It's not, not necessarily a dirty word, but we can discuss. Yeah, that. I mean, it has powered the world for, I don't know, like 150 years. So, so yeah, yeah. 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 So, uh, but at ExxonMobil too, um, I was working mostly on emissions mitigation technologies. So I think the world was realizing that, you know, obviously we cannot live on oil and gas forever, um, or you know, at least cannot continue to do things the way that we have in, in this, um, um, with hydrocarbons, uh, fueling everything. So ExxonMobil had, um, you know, areas like biofuels, um, carbon capture, um, hydro carbon free hydrogen, things like that, um, where where I worked, um, and it was again most a lot of materials development and process development, um, uh, and uh, that's where I spent the next I guess five years of my career. Um, and um, towards the end of my career, the last year I also spent in strategy and planning. So um, by that point, I, you know, I'd, I'd been an advanced researcher, senior researcher, and I, I got pulled into strategy and planning to, because um, I guess uh, partly because of my interest in uh, low emissions and, and trying to see how the company should go, right? There's, there's different parts where the company could go. Um, there was a lot of talk in the company about um, um, increasing the focus on lower carbon solutions. And, uh, I think so the, my interest kind of matched with where the company was going. And I, so I spent, I did a one year stint there in, um, in strategy and planning with that as my focus area. Um, so I, I was planning advisor. Um, I could advise the VP of research as to what the company should be working on, what kinds of problems make sense to solve. Um, I, I like that role a lot because it helped me to bring my, perspective and my intrinsic desire to make an impact on you know the carbon reduction uh, emissions reduction it allowed me to marry that with where the company was going um so that's i said you know that was a that was an interesting experience it was a foray out of day-to-day -day technical role into something that was more um more forward-looking right strategy mm -hmm. How I know about Praxair is, you know, I went to I went to undergrad in at at NIT Jamshedpur, and then there were, I mean, it was an industrial area, and there were these, um, you know, huge uh, chimneys uh, with with Praxair label label on them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't know that they were they were bought by by, by Linde. Um, you you touched upon the fact that you you love being part of that process where you know, a prototype or. I mean, prototype in a general engineering sense, uh, but prototype usually comes to, to fruition by, by scaling it up, right? I think Elon Musk always says this, like it's so easy to build a prototype, but uh, the difficulty comes in mass manufacturing and, and 
he always talks about this when when he talks about tesla and and how difficult it was uh, people have ideas ideas are cheap uh, but it's it's just so difficult and especially the car industry um, is so yeah. competitive uh, more than competitive it's it's like this eclectic you know uh, group of group of mm-hmm. people it was so difficult for him to to break into that um, so so great uh, so so you were part of the uh, were you in woodland houston with with exxon mobil uh, they have a huge no, I, research yeah i i visited woodlands a bunch uh, but my main office was in new jersey so I was living oh the one yeah 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 i yeah. i uh, so I, yeah. i went from minnesota to um, buffalo uh, to, that's tonawanda actually in uh, upstate new york that's where praxair's headquarters was um, so the technology headquarters and then i went to new jersey um, and so exxon at the time had a pretty large site about 1000 employees and um, all focused on r&d Uh, but we used to work closely with the Houston side. That was the main head office. Yeah, I think I think Houston, uh, Jersey, and Bangalore were sort of the big uh, research centers for Exxon. Um, mm-hmm. uh, just just curious, what is Exxon up to these days? Uh, is it heavily still focused on oil, or or are they diversifying? I, I just want to know the general. Yeah, I, so I think uh, all oil companies have woken up and realized uh, that they can't. It can't all be about oil. Um, but that being said their core, core business is still oil right so i think there's always going to be some demand for oil um i think the smartest way to use oil honestly is to make petrochemicals um because right now people are looking into bio based feedstocks to make chemicals but it's still very early stage and uh, cannot be done at the scale that we require um but at least if you're using oil to make you know polymers and chemicals and things that don't go into the atmosphere but maybe use you know like making make, making plastics and things like that that are needed in day to day life um but do it in a smart way and recycle the plastics and make it all a circular process so that you you know for example take used plastics and put it back into your processing plants and come out you know that way you, you recycle what's um what's already been made instead of making it all about getting fresh oil out of the ground the smart ways in which i think uh, uh, plastics and chemicals can be made and recycled um so and that need i don't think is going to go away for another few decades at least um at, at least until i think the next closest is a bio based uh, route to replace all of these petrochemical routes um but getting oil out of the ground and getting gas out of the ground just to burn it um that has to go away pretty fast and i think that um some companies are in line if you look at the oil and gas space there's bp shell lexon mobil so many companies right um and i think shell has been um a little more proactive than the other companies in the sense they were very early on they invested in wind and european after all <laughs> european exactly that's the difference the europe versus us difference you can clearly see in the oil companies and their strategies um exxon mobil always had a kind of last man standing kind of approach i think as the other companies pivoted away from oil and gas at least part of the business or or added in the renewables component um uh, Exxon Mobil always resisted that for a really long time uh but i think now slowly they um i think they're amping up their efforts on hydrogen and biofuels um and again hydrogen comes from oil and gas so oil and gas is what it's a hydrocarbon and oil and gas molecule is comprised of a bunch of hydrocarbon molecules with carbon and hydrogen in them and what exxon knows is how to treat these molecules so they're like you know if if we need to go carbon free maybe we take the carbon out and we take only the hydrogen and then use that 
as a as a fuel or you know whatever um, energy purposes um but um you know i think that's there's only a certain extent to which that can work um you of course you have to capture the carbon you have to sequester it um it's always better not to start with carbon in the first place if you can right like directly go for renewables or uh, geothermal or other kinds of energy um so i think exxon mobil is it's a giant you have to remember it's a dinosaur and dinosaurs and big ships take time to turn around and move um so i think just that inertia of uh having a core business and you know the it's really difficult to pivot away from a core business when you're that big of a company it takes time so that's where they are they are right now and and actually one of the reasons that i left exxon mobil was also i wasn't satisfied with the pace at which i was seeing things change um and you know i i realized that i'm i'm really motivated by um uh bringing you know working on technologies or bringing technologies to fruition that can have a positive carbon impact or that can displace these dirty technologies um that have been in use for hundreds of years so um so i guess that that we can go to the next part of my journey if you want it's a nice transition yeah yeah i think i just want to touch on this whole oil and gas thing like i i worked with oil and gas for a brief bit and and the point you say about being resistant to change is is way more in oil and gas than any mm-hmm. other field because uh i think i think the stake is is huge uh and after the bp oil spill people are more resistant to taking risks and they are like hey this works so why not just keep doing it uh, so that's one thing that i've noted personally uh, yeah. with respect and, to oil and, and the stakes are high you're absolutely right in terms of even you think of how much capital these companies have invested in the ground look at if you've gone and looked at an uh, a refinery you'll see you know anybody who's seen a refinery will know what i'm talking about you have they they're, they're massive right this this sprawling campuses with you know massive reactors and massive separation this distillation towers and all kinds of equipment in there and uh, each of these refineries is like a multi billion uh, investment and to completely change away from that it's so if you are in software or you know doing it or something like that it's it's easier to pivot you can be a lot more agile but when you are in this kind of sector which has so much capital on the ground it's very difficult to completely change from one technology form to the other and here it becomes more important to think about how can you repurpose what you already have on the ground right not let it go to waste um and these kinds of ideas can really bring um uh, practical solutions so instead of going and saying that oh everyone has to change to sun and wind and uh, throw away all of these multi billion dollar assets that's not going to fly and or that's that's a very hard uh, mountain Self. to climb yeah you've got to think of um how you can form a bridge right in uh, and forming that bridge is uh, is critical to making anything work and to deploying solutions um and so there there's many way to do ways to do that and we can we can talk about that but uh, like you said the stakes are really high and it this is one of the biggest uh, reasons why uh, anything in this in this chemicals oil and gas um you know this this large scale anything that's large scale and involves hardware takes time to change 